Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And the word of the Lord reads this way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And this is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. My prayer um, in preparation for this sermon was, Lord, make me fast and accurate. So here we go. Malachi 41, verse 2, starting in verse 2. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will stumble. And the day is coming that shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. This passage here in Malachi 4, I believe I said 41 earlier, there is no Malachi 41. Malachi 4, 1 and 2, is the last prophecy of the Old Testament. This was the last time that God had spoken to his people. And the voice of prophecy had been silent in Israel for four hundred years. That's a really long time. Four hundred years is a long time. A lot of history can transpire over the course of four hundred years. That's a long time for people to become set in their ways, to look for the promise and to become discouraged when they don't see that promise breaking forth. 400 years with no message from God. And here in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, only a select few were privy to the good news of great joy of the Christ child's birth. It's been more than 25 years since Joseph and his family moved back to Nazareth. And in Matthew 3, we shift now to start looking at the public ministry of Jesus Christ. The stage is set, the players are in the wings, 
the spotlight claps on, and out of the wilderness onto the stage walks a strange prophet with bugs in his teeth, honey in his beard, dressed in camel hair, and preaching repentance and baptism for people in the Jordan River. This weird character is none other than John the Baptist. He's the cousin of Jesus, and he's this wild firebrand, and he's been prophesied about. He's been tasked with preparing the way for the appearance of the messianic kingdom. I don't know how familiar you, familiar you are with like um, firefighting, especially like forest firefighters. It's kind of a fascinating, fascinating world. Um, but if I could give you an illustration kind of about what's taking place here with the people of Israel as it pertains to um, this analogy of deadfall and forest fire. What happens, and I'm no expert on this, but what happens is over time you have trees that grow up, right? And for various reasons, lightning strikes and causes fires. They fall down or they grow up and age. And after they've uh, lived their life, they fall down. Uh, maybe winds push them over. Many things can happen to cause trees to fall. And in areas where there is no cultivation of that and where there is no one coming in and, and moving that deadfall, oftentimes what you find is God in his providence sends things like lightnings and there's little fires that burn away the deadfall. And in some areas, deadfall can build up and build up and build up and build up. And what happens is it becomes a giant tinderbox for a lightning strike, if these little fires don't burn, and if we in the cultivating of land and in the, in the uh, trying to control these fires don't allow little fires to burn and burn away these areas of deadfall uh, so they don't build up into huge um, tinderboxes, what will happen if they build up over and over is that a spark will come and ignite the whole thing and it will completely go up in flames. And, and sin and repentance is like this. Little fires that come uh, via the lightning of the Holy Spirit, if you will, come in and they burn off the deadfall of our hearts. The Holy Spirit comes in and he convicts us of sin. This happens in our own lives and in our families and churches and cities and in countries that the Holy Spirit shines into the dark places of our heart, conviction and repentance are always taking place. And this is what the believer's life should look like, burning away the deadfall so that the sun can shine upon those seeds that are in the ground that they can spring forth and create new life into new forests and the new trees. Sin and repentance is like this. These little fires in your life oftentimes are the Holy Spirit working to burn away the deadfall. But if you neglect confession and if you neglect repentance, the deadfall will build up more and more and more until one tiny spark and the whole thing is up in flames. Right? So you need to do some fire management in your own heart. You need to help the Holy Spirit clear away the deadfall. This is what, this is what Matthew is kind of saying here about the people of Israel. The people of Israel have allowed unrepentant sin to build up and build up and build up for like 400 years, building up and building up. They have shunned the prophets before that and not listened to them. 
not listen to the messengers that God in his mercy had sent them, and the dead fall built up. And what John comes saying is, Israel, you are a giant forest of dead trees, and a spark is coming. A spark is coming that will ignite all of you up in flames unless you will repent. This is the picture of our passage today. Israel has become like Egypt. We talked about this last week. Once a thriving forest, now Israel has become this giant pile of deadfall. They have become just like the pagan nations. Their leaders are just like the pagan leaders. Herod is just like Pharaoh, killing the children to protect his throne. A spark is coming. God has been sending messengers, and now he will send one more messenger to make this message clear. What's happening here in our text is, is we are seeing the prosecution of apostate Israel. They are on trial, if you will. We are seeing the prosecution of apostate Israel. A legal case is being built against them. It's being proclaimed against old covenant Israel. And two major witnesses emerge to testify against them. The first witness we're going to see here in the person of John the Baptist, bringing the message of judgment and hope. The second witness that we'll deal with more next week is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. John the Baptist will hand over the prosecution in chapter 3 to Jesus, and Jesus will spend the rest of Matthew building this case against apostate Israel. And this will all culminate in Matthew 24, where Jesus will prophesy the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem and this wicked generation. And he will call the true people of God who believe in him to look for the signs of judgment that are coming and to come out from among them and flee the destruction. This is the setting, all right? And you see the similarities of calling the people out of Egypt, right? Matthew is a master, as we said last week, of the Old Testament, and he, he's, he's putting these stories in and making these prophecies come to life and showing Israel that they have forgotten their God. So let's look at the first witness. The first witness is John the Baptist. Adam asked me if I was okay this morning because I only had two points for him to put on the screen. I said, yes. The reason I only had two is because I have lots of subpoints, and I don't want you to get too confused, all right? So we're just going to look at John the Baptist as the, as the first witness. John the Baptist, verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Well, we're going to ask this question. Who is John the Baptist? Who is this guy? Well, I'll give you a couple ideas from the Scripture, who the Scripture says he is. Not ideas, truths of who the Scripture says he is. Number one, he is the prophesied prophet. Right? That he has been prophesied about. They said he would come. Verse 3 of our text, for this is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his paths. This was prophesied to his parents. And if you were reading the Christmas story to your kids, you remember that the angel shows up to multiple people, and one of the people that he shows up to is John the Baptist's parents, his father in particular. John was the cousin of Jesus. In Luke 1, in verse 16, 
he's telling John's father that John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This is why some people thought that maybe John the Baptist was perhaps the Messiah. And he will go before him. But there's key language in the prophecy of the angel in Luke 1. And he, speaking of John the Baptist, will go before him, speaking of somebody else, speaking of Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to wisdom, uh, wisdom to the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John the Baptist is somebody who the prophets said would come, all right? Number two, he is a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. That was the prophecy given by the angel. He's a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. Verse four, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. Everything about John is, is the vibe, if you will, of the Old Testament legends, the big guns, the, the big prophets, even in the way he presents himself. He is a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. And the people knew stories about the great prophet Elijah and you'll see this Old Testament vibe and all these little small things. So the locusts that he eats, the, eating these bugs, right? Parents watch your kids. They're going to go home and try to eat locusts. Don't, are we supposed to have the cicada thing coming soon? Some of you? Okay. Um, so he's, he's eating locusts. This is a representation of God's judgment. In the Old Testament, locusts were sent to consume the crops in punishment to God's people. This represents God's judgment. Honey. He eats honey as well, represents God's blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey. He presents himself with this camel hair coat and this leather belt. It's a specific reference uh, for him in his appearance to Elijah. If you go to 2 Kings 1, you can go read this story in your own time. Um, there's a king of, of uh, the people, king of Israel. He's not a very good king. And uh, one of his men comes to him and says, uh, King, there is a prophet, a man, knocking on the door of the gate, and he has a message for you. Um, and the king says this. He says, um, what does the prophet look like? And I'll, I'll just read it for you. He said to them, what kind of a man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. And I love this. And uh, the king said, and I picture him just being like, it is Elijah the Tishbite. <laughs> this guy won't leave me alone. He, he knew who he was by how he was dressed. And, and John is making no mistake here. It's, it's not that he could, that's the only thing he could find, or that's the only thing his mama made for him to wear was, here's your little camel hair outfit. No, he was presenting himself as the prophet Elijah, even in how he appeared. So one, he is prophesied about. Two, he is a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. And three, John the Baptist is the forerunner to Christ. He's the forerunner to Christ. Uh, Jesus, speaking of John in Matthew 11, what did you go out to, the, to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. He is um, of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way before you goes on to talk about how John the Baptist is the, is the greatest born among women. He is the, the greatest prophet. And of all prophets, John the Baptist is here to, to pronounce the coming of the king. So we have all the prophets of the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. Now you have John the Baptist 
And then Jesus is going to come upon the scene. He's the forerunner to Christ. And so if you, if, you fly, if you were to fly really high over this passage or over the idea of John the Baptist being the forerunner to Christ, there's many things that we could say about this. We'll say this about it, maybe talk more about it in cold pizza. If you do like the 30,000 foot view of what John represents, John represents the law in many ways that, that tells us of our need, the prophet who preaches to us of our great sin that leads us to Christ, all right? But we'll dive deeper into that as we go through Matthew uh, especially starting next week. So, John the Baptist, who is he? There, who, that's who he is. Um, what is John's message? What is John's message? Well, you can see what his message is. What is his message? Repent! That's what I figured. He's coming out of the wilderness, crazy hair, camel hair, you know, bugs in his teeth, honey in his beard. Repent! Like, if you look at the Old Testament prophets, all these guys were like, many of them were just like crazy messengers of God. And he comes out, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In summary, this is what his message is. Israel, you have rejected the Lord your God and therefore become like the pagan nations. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore repent and be saved or you will perish. That's his, that's his message in summary. If you look at the prophets of the Bible, you will see that all of God's messengers would bring a charge against somebody, telling them how they had erred in their ways. They would bring a charge against them, and then they would also bring a promise. There was always a charge, this is what you've done wrong, and there was a promise, usually a promise of hope. And John the Baptist is no different than the Old Testament prophets. He's bringing a charge against Israel, and he's also bringing a promise of hope. The call to repentance, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Just the, the ex, loud yelling of repentance, repent, 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 telling them that they need to repent, the charge of, of calling them to repent shows that there was an actual charge against them. So here's what I mean. God does not call people to repent if they have not sinned. You understand that? God does not call people to repent if they have not sinned. Consequently, this is very important in covenant community. You cannot call someone to repent because they don't submit to your preference, right? There has to be real sin in order to call somebody to repentance. It is to bring against somebody a sinful charge. So he's not coming out of the wilderness saying, hey guys, let's work on some behavior modification. John the Baptist does not come out of the wilderness and say, let's work on being the best versions of ourselves." He does not come out of the wilderness yelling, let's start practicing some mindfulness and self-love. He does not say, let's work on healing our inner child. He does not say, let's create some safe spaces to talk about what's been happening. And he does not say, hey friends, I want to invite you to explore the rich beauty of this guy named Jesus who's about to show up. He doesn't say that. That's what you will hear if you listen to most sermons, though, in our culture today. What does he say? He comes out yelling for people to repent. Our churches today have become safe, quote-unquote, and comfortable, quote-unquote, spaces where soft-spoken leaders feed goats a steady diet of sugar-soaked garbage. 
but the forerunner to Jesus Christ shouts a message of repentance and, and coming judgment and hope. And as we live in covenant community together, we have this occasion to call one another to repentance. But remember, if you're going to call people to repentance, you need to have a legitimate charge against them. So when he's coming out of the wilderness saying, repent, these people knew that he wasn't coming out saying, hey, uh, I'd like to talk to you about some missteps. He was saying, you have sinned. There's a real big problem here. This is what all the prophets did before. So, so he's calling them to repent, shows that they actually have sinned. There's a charge against them. So what is the charge? What is the charge? Uh, verse 5, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region of the Jordan were going out to him. Verse 6, And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So verse 6 is really important. And they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. So... Understanding what Israel's sin is, we understand it by looking at what John calls them to do. Repent. Well, okay, repent, and, and what am I supposed to do in my repentance? What, what obedience to God are you calling me to do? What, what's the charge? We find out what the actual charge is to Israel because John calls them to be baptized, He's calling them to be baptized, and this is how we know what the charge against them is. If, if you were a Jew in the first century and heard John saying that you needed to repent and be baptized, you would have been astonished by this message and greatly offended at the charge that he was bringing against you. And here's why. So, so we understand baptism in our, in our New Testament context. Right? We understand that. But baptism was actually something that the Jewish people practiced as well. All right, but it's different. It has similarities here, but it's different. There was a baptism in the Old Testament. The baptism that John administered was not identical to the baptism that Jesus commissioned in the New Covenant Church. You see, the Jews had a ritual called prostatite baptism, which was applied to Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. So in, when, a, when a Jewish person was, uh, was, was hearing this, they were, they were hearing that John was saying they were just like the Gentiles, they were just like the pagans. And so they regarded all the Gentiles as strangers under the old covenant, and indeed they were, and they were outside of the covenant community of Israel, and they were considered unclean and impure and defiled. So if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, they had to um, go through certain procedures, and one of those was to, to go through this baptism ritual, to ceremoniously cleanse themselves being a part of the new covenant family. This was designed to remove these ceremonial impurities for those who were outside of God's covenant people. So you can see here why John's message was so offensive to them. The Jews thought themselves to be ceremoniously clean. But John is telling them that they are, in fact, unclean and no different than the pagans. Repent. There's a problem, and you need to be baptized in your repentance. Wait a minute, John. You're saying that we are no different than all the pagans? Now, just as Israel came out of Egypt in the wilderness and over the Jordan River into the promised land, now John is saying that the people need to come out of Jerusalem into the wilderness and be baptized in the Jordan River. 
It's, it's a reverse exodus that John is calling them to. You have become just like Egypt, just like your former oppressors. You have become apostate. You have forgotten your God. You have erected wicked leaders, just like the pharaohs, who you were delivered from. And now you must come out. Come out from them. Be separate. Repent. And what is Israel's response to this message? Well, as you look at the entirety of the book of Matthew, you'll see their response. Israel's response to the message of, uh, of John's interaction with them here and his call to them to repent is seen in his interaction with the religious leaders. We'll, we'll talk about that here in just a minute. All right, remember, Herod was not the only villain in our story last week. No, the people were the ones who had allowed him to sit upon the throne. It was because of their own sin that God had allowed wicked rulers to rule over them. And, and the religious leaders here are the same. The, the religious leaders are a manifestation of the whole nation and their response to this message. The, the people had allowed these religious rulers to rule over them, and, and God in judgment had allowed that to take place. So the people of Israel are the real ultimate villains of the story who kill the children and, and who push back against the message of the kingdom. Verses 7 and 8, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I love that John sees them coming. He, he doesn't have any words with them. He just sees them coming. He's baptizing and, oh, you know, bless you. And then he looks up and he sees them coming and he just goes after them right away with the intention of calling them to repentance and to provoke them. <laughs> and he calls them, You brood of vipers. He doesn't even let them speak. He blasts them straight away, calling them this brood of vipers. You know what he's calling them? In light of our sermon last week, what, uh, what does the snake, the great dragon, represent? It represents Satan. He's literally saying, you little Satans? Who warned you about this? Why have you come out here? You brood of vipers. And in, in the idea of brood of vipers, that the, the evil and the corruption of the religious leaders was just this nest of snakes, which is a horrible thing to think about, right? It's just this this big giant, amen, right? This giant ball of snakes. If you like snakes, you should repent. Oh, what's wrong with you? Oh, inordinate affection. Um, he's basically saying that, that God is not your father. Now, you think that God is your father, and you're greatly offended by this call to be baptized because I'm saying that you're no different than the pagans. God is not your father. No, the serpent, the dragon is your father, and Jesus will say the same thing later on to the Pharisees. So the same thing to them. So John's, John's skeptical about why they're coming out. Now, we could, give some, we could give some grace here and say this is the interaction that we see with John and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees represent the spirit and the heart of apostate Israel. There was definitely Pharisees and religious leaders that came to the kingdom, that came to faith during the ministry of Jesus, right? Uh, and they, they were genuine seekers. They weren't just trying to shut it down. These guys seem to be shutting, trying to shut things down, but God, John is skeptical, all right? He's, he's skeptical. The Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism. Are you actually coming to be baptized? Or are you coming to shut me down here? Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, saw themselves as the guardians of orthodoxy and orthopraxy as well. We decide what orthodoxy looks like and then how that's supposed to be carried out. They've really been hostile to the prophets. They had killed the prophets. Jesus speaks of this in his seven woes of the Pharisees. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and murdered those sent to you. 
And John, we're going to find out that John the Baptist is, is going to fall into this same line of what they do to the prophets and Jesus himself. They are not of their father. They're not of their father God. They are of the father the devil. And they're hostile to the prophets. They show no signs of changing, so show no signs of true repentance. And this is why John confronts them in the way that he does. Because listen, genuine repentance brings change of heart that is seen in good works. Okay? Their, their works had condemned them all along. They, that was evident. The people of Israel's works had condemned them. They had allowed Herods to sit on the throne and kill babies. You're, you're, you're known by your fruit. We see your works. We know that you are of your father, the devil. And the same is true here with the religious leaders. And if you remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, where he talks about a godly sorrow leads to repentance, but a worldly sorrow will not. A worldly sorrow is just, I'm sorry about the consequences. I'm sorry I got caught. So kids, listen, if you get in trouble for something, there, there is a, there's consequences to that, right? You have to get a spanking, or you might have to be grounded from something. And those consequences are a part of the sin, and a part of the process, and a part of the fruit of your sinfulness. But oftentimes, we are tempted to just be sorry we got caught, or just be sorry of the consequences, instead of allowing those consequences, that spanking, the sting of that spanking, or having to have certain privileges taken away, to show us that our sin is actually against God and against others. That is true repentance that feels uh, sorrow over um, violating God's law, hurting other people. That's true repentance, okay? Now, it doesn't mean that if you truly feel sorry for your sin that there aren't consequences. You still might have to have a spanking, or you still might have to have certain things taken away. But true repentance is not just sorry that I got caught or sorry for the consequences, it's sorry because I have offended a holy God and I've hurt people. I've sinned in this way. But the Pharisees only care about the consequences of John the Baptist and Jesus coming on the scene. They were in a great cushy spot as religious leaders. They were allowed to practice um, their religious practices of the day under Rome. So if Jesus comes along, he's going to upset a whole bunch of stuff. They got some really great systems in place that were filling their pockets and keeping them in places of power. So they weren't genuinely repentant. The only reasons they're interacting with Jesus is because they're afraid of the consequences, the repercussions of the king coming. <clears throat> True repentance is seen in a change of heart that then is seen in good works, from the heart to the hands. Repentance is always the heart to the hands, if you will, all right? <clears throat> the religious leaders sincerity has been plainly seen in the bad fruit that they have produced. And if any of them are coming to John out to his baptism, sincerely, he says, true repentance bears fruit in keeping with repentance. He's saying, if you're really repentant, then you will confess your apostasy and be baptized. Okay, Pharisees, are you genuinely sorry? For your apostate, apostasy towards God, then if you are, then bear fruit in keeping with repentance, confess, and be baptized. Some of them did throughout the ministry of Jesus, we can assume and see, but many of them didn't. The Pharisees and the Sadducees do the same thing to Jesus. They find fault, they condemn, and ultimately they, they see him executed. <clears throat> you know, there's a, a, so there's two witnesses 
against apostate Israel. There's John the Baptist and Jesus, but actually, if you look closely, uh, essentially there's three witnesses against apostate Israel. And this is the way it works with us, too, right? The, the, the Word of God shows us our need. The Holy Spirit shows us our need for Christ. We see the sinfulness of our own heart. Jesus comes to show us our need as well and to bring salvation and hope, but also left to ourself, the deadfall builds up and builds up and builds up, and we will reap what we sow. The third witness against Israel is Israel. They, they show their, that, the, that the charge is true against them by what they do to John. They behead John the Baptist, and they kill Jesus. Like they, are the, they are the third witness and final witness against themselves. When they cry, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, what they are saying in that moment is, yeah, guilty, guilty, guilty. You were right, and we're going to try to kill him. So, genuine repentance keeps us, genuine repentance keeps with the bearing of good fruit. There's a couple of things, I'll give you two things, that stand in the way of genuine repentance, okay? Two things that stand in the way of genuine repentance. That we see, there could be others, but these things are really at the core, and they rise out of the text here this morning. The first one is self-justification. What stands in the way of genuine repentance? Self-justification. He says to them, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You're nothing special, Israel. You've walked away from your God. You've become just like Egypt. Don't talk to me about being Abraham's children. Jesus has to say the same thing to them. Well, we are Abraham's children. And what does Jesus say? Such a baller comment, but before Abraham was, I am. He's saying, I'm God. Self-justification is the heart of Phariseeism, right? And Phariseeism specializes in finding um, all the reasons why it should not repent, all of the good deeds done by which we should be justified. Phariseeism also specializes in finding faults with others while overlooking our own faults. Finding faults with others while overlooking our own faults. Often we can find it, if we're really honest with ourselves, we find it hard to justify our own actions. So in order to prop up our own self-justification, we go find fault with others to fortify our arguments. Well, at least I'm not so-and-so. Remember this, the prayer that Jesus talked about to two men that went to pray? And what did the, 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 um, the Pharisee say? I am glad I am not like him. And here's the ways I'm not like him. So therefore, I should be justified. And how often do we do this? We do this in our marriages. Instead of, why is it, why is it so hard? I was talking to some parents in our church recently, and they were talking about um, a disciplined moment between siblings where they were calling the one child who had wronged the other to say that they were sorry. And they said it was visibly like, hard for that child to get it out of their mouth. They were like, sorry. Like, it just wouldn't come out. They were like, they were just twisting and turning. With, it was just like they were going to choke on the words, I'm sorry. Why is that? It's because our hearts are desperately wicked. It's because we do really believe that we 
are justified in our actions, and it's so easy to believe that we're justified in our actions because it's so easy to overlook our own faults and see the sin in others, isn't it? We do this in our marriages. Instead of just owning where we are wrong in an argument, oftentimes, you know, it takes two to dance, right? And so oftentimes, even if you bear a little bit, like a small percentage of the wrong, you still have to bear that wrong and confess and walk in repentance. But how easy is it for us to justify our own actions by pointing out all the ways that your spouse made you get to that point? Kids can do this in, in, in to their parents. We do this in the church. Self-justification is so good at seeing all the ways by which we are living rightly and how others are failing miserably. This, this comes down to real practical things where, 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 we make, um, where we make methods, the principles. So a principle of, of the scripture is that, that parents should be in charge of the education of their children, right? This is your responsibility to cultivate and exercise dominion over the method for that can be discussed, right? As long as it's, if it's nailed to the principle. But how often do we make those methods kings, right? Well, I do private school or I do homeschool and I do this certain kind of homeschool, which is better than your homeschool, right? We get into these silly, silly arguments, right? At times. We make the, the method the principle ultimately. And many times this is a self-justification, or perhaps you get to the end of a day, ladies, and you have served your family well, you have, have, uh, have been busy at your work, you have put the kids in bed, and you sit next to your husband to talk about the day, and it's the only moment when you're actually able to think because you're running around serving, 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 and all of a sudden you're actually able to think, and you start remembering that, oh, when my kid asked me to color with them, like I didn't do that thing, and you feel condemned, or... I messed up in this way, or I, I, you look across and you see the laundry, and your justification and your worth is wrapped up in marking all the boxes. Or you get to the end of the day and you're able to think, and you start to think about all the things that you have done well, all the things that you have done perfectly. And they might be very good things and beautiful things, but you judge ultimately, ultimately, your worth before God and your spiritual maturity based on your, will, your ability to be able to perform ultimately. These are good things, but they are not ultimate things for you to base your justification upon. Jesus says um, in, in this idea of self-justification, he's talking in Matthew 11 about John the Baptist, and he's talking to a group of Pharisees about this. He said, for John came neither eating or drinking, and they said, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is showing them that they are disregarding John's method because they are saying, John's so crazy, he's not meeting our standard nor our message, and so they looked for ways to discredit him and said, oh, he has a demon. They did the same thing with Jesus when he ate with tax collectors and sinners to prove to the Pharisees the point that they are no different, and they disregarded Jesus' message because he did not meet their standard. The Christ was not what they expected. And how easy for, is it for us to disregard when others call us to repentance because, well, they don't meet the standard that we believe they should meet. And we discredit them because of all the things that are wrong in their own life. So what stands in the way of genuine repentance is self-justification. And the second thing here we see is, I think, stubbornness. Stubbornness. Well, where do we get this? I'll, I'll uh, use the scripture I just used in Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, verse 15, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
talking about John the Baptist's message. He's a, he's a prophet from Elijah. He's proclaiming that the Christ is here. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You should listen to John's message of repentance. But what did they do? Jesus says, but what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played a flute to you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. The crowds and the religious leaders who have rejected John and Jesus' message are like selfish, stubborn little children, always insisting on their own way. This is a self-justification. Here's all the reasons I am right and all the reasons you're wrong. John, your message is not true of us. We are Abraham's children. And besides, look at all the things that we do so perfectly. And then self-justification doubles down in stiff-neckedness or in stubbornness. Jesus says, I can't speak to this generation because everything that I give them, we sing a, a song to them and they say, forget it. We played the flute for them and they did not dance. The people rejected the gospel of John and Jesus because it did not conform to their expectations and what they wanted. One commentator says this, Jesus compares his generation to sulky children who choose to sit and do nothing despite plausible offers to play. Jesus compares himself and John to children who call out to their potential playmates. They play music and they propose dancing, perhaps an imagery of a wedding, but the children refuse everything. Next, they play a dirge to mourn, perhaps it's a funeral, but their friends decline this offer too. Nothing pleases this generation. Nothing moves them. As no game or fantasy can please the mood of a moody child, so nothing pleases his Jesus generation. And this is the way we are in our self-justification. No, 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 no. I am right. And in some ways here we're seeing the sense that they have seared their consciences so much that they call evil good and good evil. We're seeing that in our day so much. This attitude, though, persists in our hearts when we believe um, that we are right, self-justified, double down, and refuse to be proven otherwise. This self-justifying stubbornness can be seen in, in very practical ways. Like when you ask your elders for wisdom, but have already made up your mind what you want to do, and you just want them to bless it. I, I've had multiple conversations like that, and counseling situations like that over the years. Hey, I want to talk to you about something. To, so much so that your elders have often taken to saying, hey, do you really want my counsel or do you just want my approval? Because when somebody has settled into, I just, I've already justified why I should do these things and already kind of uh, preemptively figured out you know, and, and put up guards against what you're going to say, and I just want you to approve what I've said, bless what I've said, sprinkle some holy water on what I've said so that I don't feel guilty about it. How often do we do? We can do this in marriage as well. So many times we've already made up our mind. I, I cannot tell you how many times I've sat in counseling before and showed people like cold, hard truths from the scriptures, like opened it and turned it around and said, read this. And they say, I don't care. Like, I don't care. And that, that's where the Pharisees are. That's where Israel is. And, and it's a picture of the sinfulness of humanity. In our self-justification, we double down in our stubbornness and presented with blatant truth about our sin and the requirements of a holy God. We say, nah, 
Forget it. And we think that everybody else is wrong. And you know, when, usually when everybody else is wrong, you think everybody else is the jerk, you're usually the jerk, right? If everybody else has the problem. Beware, though, your sin will find you out. Verse 10, even now the ax is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It is not the hour for the religious leaders to judge John's message. It is the hour for them to repent and face God's judgment. When we put our seat, ourselves in the seat of judge and jury and executioner, now it's time for the people of Israel and the Pharisees to hush. So what is the promise then? What is the promise? Is, is there a promise of hope? This is a harsh rebuke for Israel. You're apostate. You've gone wrong. Be baptized. Be baptized. Come out from them. God is bringing judgment. Just like he brought judgment to Egypt, come out into the wilderness. What is the promise? Is there a promise? We see these promises in, in verses 11 through 12. Yes, there is a, a good news because prophets bring a charge and then they bring a promise of hope. What is the promise? The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. I baptize you, in verse 11, I baptize you with uh, water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He, he is putting himself, John, in a position of, of uh, a worship before God who is coming. He is saying that the Messiah is here, the Son of God. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The promise and the hope is found in this second witness, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And he will say many more scandalous things to offend the fragile egos of the religious crowd. But there will be hope in his message and it's not just found in his message, but it's found in his very person and his life. We talked about that in evangelism class today, that you cannot separate the person of Jesus apart from his work. He came to, to save, and here's how he came to save, but you also cannot separate the person of Jesus, that he is the, the incarnate word of God, the person and work of Jesus. He will come declaring a message of hope and judgment if they do not repent but he will bring a message of hope with his very life. John's water baptism will be superseded by the baptism associated with the coming Lord. All who repent and trust in him will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jews, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, baptized into Christ, but the unrepentant will receive the judgment of eternal fire. And this is the message of Jesus in John 3. For God so loved the world, these are Jesus' words, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. But you must believe in him or you will perish. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And he goes on to talk about the, the light that's coming into the world, and those who have not accepted the light flee from the light. Why? Because they love the darkness, because their deeds are evil. Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This language would have been significant, and there's so many things we kind of nerd out on in the beginning of Matthew as he's tying things from the Old Testament. But when he uses this language of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, first century Jews would have been hesitant to speak the Lord's name. They were very concerned about taking the Lord's name in vain. And so oftentimes they would substitute a word um, about God 
they would substitute the, the name of God out and substitute in something kind of representing God's name, like the word heaven. That's why John uses the phrase here, heaven, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying the Lord is here. The Lord is actually here walking in flesh and blood. And this, was, again, was a scandalous thing for the people of Israel, right, for these Jews. You put yourself in their sandals, you would have believed that you, as a nation, were the holy people. You were the kingdom of heaven. The, the kingdom of heaven, the holy city of Jerusalem, that's the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. Well, why? Well, that's because where the temple was. That's where God's presence dwelt. The people of Israel saw themselves as the center of God's dwelling. And from that center, all the nations would be blessed. But the kingdom of God is not of this world. It's most certainly invading this world, right? And this is why he says to them, though, don't, don't presume to say we, we are Abraham's sons. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. This, this was their hope. They claimed Abraham to make them the people of God. They claimed that, well, we are the offspring of Abraham, therefore we are blessed. We are the nation of God. We are the heavenly kingdom. And from us, the center of all things will be blessed. Paul actually says in Galatians 3 that Abraham's offspring is Christ. It's Christ. He is the offspring. Christ is the offspring of Adam. Christ is the son by which all the nations will be blessed. So John says, here, here he comes. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You are not the kingdom of heaven. You're apostate. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's walking on this earth in flesh and blood, and I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. This, this, this idea that God, that, that heaven was near, God was near, and that he said, I'm not even fit to carry his sandals, and the people were saying, wait a minute, he's, like, he's got sandals because he's got feet because he's walking because he's actually here? In flesh and blood, the Messiah, this was a crazy, crazy thing and an exciting thing for them, but they were very, very taken aback that this Messiah had not come to establish once and for all them as the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, they had to be forgiven and baptized. He says for them to prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his paths a straight highway through the wilderness, and this is a part of the message of hope. We are supposed to prepare for the kingdom of heaven coming upon us by making the way straight. How do you make the way straight? Well, you repent, confess, and repent. This is what the people were doing as they get baptized. They are saying, yes, we are apostate. We have failed, and we will repent so that we might be brought into the fold. This is a, a prophecy, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths, this is a prophecy from Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, and her that her welfare has ended, her warfare has ended, excuse me, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low, and the uneven ground shall be made level, and rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Lord is calling his people to make straight paths for him. But the good news is this, we can't do that ultimately. So Christ comes, 
The Lord Jesus comes to blaze a trail, a straight and broad highway through the wilderness of human depravity. The, the people had to wander through the wilderness as they came out of Egypt to, to get into the promised land. And it was difficult. Hills and valleys and brambles and bushes and, and all sorts of things stood in their way. It's a picture of our sinfulness and our inability to get to God. And Jesus comes to blaze a giant trail through the desert of human depravity that we might be able to be reconciled to a holy God. He is the living water. John is pointing to this, that he is the living water that if we drink of, we will never thirst again. His winnowing fork is in his hand, verse 12. This is a, a, a hope with a promise. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear this threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see this language in, in Psalm 1. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. A winnowing fork would be something where you would gather wheat, and you would scoop it up on a day where it was really breezy, and you would toss it up into the air, and the chaff would blow away, but the wheat would fall back down and be kept. And this is what the kingdom of God is like. He's coming to, to take a giant winnowing fork, Jesus is, and he's going to scoop up everybody and throw them up into the wind. And those who have put faith in Christ will not be shaken, but will remain. And those who have not put faith in Christ will be shaken and will be blown away. Because they are built upon the sand and they will crumble. You see these analogies all through the parables of Jesus. God is not wasteful in his judgment. He is not wasteful in his judgment. The temple will be destroyed. He's going to destroy the temple. And they're like, what are you talking about? Do you know how long it took to build this thing and you're talking about destroying it? But God is not wasteful in his judgment. He's going to come and he's going to, to, um, to judge them. But in its place, he's going to burn away the dead fall of the forest. But in its place, it will make room for the seeds to grow up. He will destroy the temple. He's prophesying about the temple being destroyed. And in its place, a living temple, not built with hands, will be brought up. And instead of calling the world to come to the temple in Jerusalem, now God's people, the people of God who put their faith in Christ, they are now the temple, and they will go to the nations to tell them about the King, about the Lord, and how to worship him. And, and these people who trust in Christ, they're not just going to inherit the Middle East, they're going to inherit the entire earth. God is not wasteful in his judgment. He, he burns down so that other things may grow. So what is our application in this? The message for us this morning is the same message to the people of Israel. Repent, repent, repent. Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not lip service. It will be known in your actions. Leave the kingdom of darkness. Come to the kingdom of light. Come out from among them and be separate. Come out of your sin. Come to Christ. This is the message. It's a call for you to repent. And you're going to hear this every single day, God calling you to walk in repentance. As you read the scripture, as you come to church, as you interact with one another, there are opportunities to allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the repentance that is available to you in Christ to burn away the deadfall so that new growth might spring up. And you have options. You have options, and there are only two of them. You're either going to respond like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you will self-justify and double down in your stubbornness, and the deadfall will build up in your life until one day it's going to go up in flames just by one little spark. Or you will bow the knee to Jesus and repent. So let me give you just two ways to repent. 
How do you repent? I think you see this in verses 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. First of all, you have to confess. Confess. Confess your sins. A couple points about confession. When you confess your sins, get it right. And here's what I mean by get it right. Confessing your sins is agreeing with God about what sin is and what sin is not. God is the one who defines what it is. And remember, you can only repent if you have sinned. If you've sinned. And some of you may be agonizing over something that's not actually sin. Right? It's just condemnation. So search your heart and see, but don't don't try to put a false confession on something that you're just feeling condemnation over, hoping over and over and over again that if you confess it just right this time, that finally God will forgive you. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Claim the blood of Christ. Confess it, but make sure that what you're confessing is actually sin. Make sure that what you're calling others to confess and repent of is actually sin. Some of you perhaps are calling others to repent of something that's just not sin. Who have you sinned against? Get it right. You've sinned against a holy God, against you and you alone have I sinned, he says in, David says in Psalm 51. So your sin is against God, and then it is against those who you have wronged. So confess it. And when we confess, like the fire that burns away the deadfall, let it all be burnt away. What I mean by that is confess quickly. The Puritans talked about this so much. Short sin accounts. Why do you hold on in stubbornness and self-justification when you could just confess and repent? Uh, Pastor Matt talked about this in, in his parenting class when it comes to discipline. The, 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 um, the spirit of our home should be one of joy and peace, and, and discipline should be a momentary interruption of that. We confess, we deal with it, we repent, and we move on in forgiveness. And that creates and cultivates a spirit in our home of joy and the same thing is true in marriages and in churches, but we hold on to in self-justification and in doubled-down stubbornness, not pleased with anything like little sulky children, wanting people to play the games that we want to play and how we want to play them. And we create and cultivate churches that are angry and bitter with one another when we have this gift of just confess it quickly. And you know how you do that? I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? It's as simple as that, right? Genuinely, from the heart, to the Lord, and to those you have wronged. Confess quickly, confess fully, all the way down to the root. Just yank it out now. Don't confess in like increments. Like just confess it all the way down to the core, all the way down to the root, pull it out. You know those dandelions that we're about to start seeing soon? You know how they work. You don't pull them out all the way, they come right back. So quickly, fully, all the way down, confess your sins. Confession is not enough, though, and this is what we end on. Turn from your sin and pursue righteousness. This is repentance. My father used to tell us this as kids all the time. Repentance is a military term. It's an about face. I am pursuing unrighteousness. I realize that by the Holy Spirit's truth. I confess that, and I turn around, and I pursue righteousness. And I pursue righteousness. And that is the whole of the Christian life. And our life should not be one of, of, of digging in the dumpsters and running down alleys, but it should be one of 
of perpetual righteousness, an endless procession of righteous living, where we do have mess-ups and we do have things we have to confess, but it is a steady, a steady pace towards the celestial city. The sacrament of baptism is the first step of obedience for the believer. That's what John the Baptist is calling them to. Confess your sins. You're apostate. And in confessing that, now come and get dunked in this water in obedience to the Lord's command. That's what we do in baptism in the New Testament context. People confess their sins, and, and, and they put faith, they profess hope in Christ, and in obedience, they get dunked. That's what we say when we baptize people. Um, they confess their uh, sins before the Lord, that he is their only hope. Upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus and in obedience to our Lord's command, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as they walk in obedience. So confession is not enough. It has to be followed up by repentance. Listen, you can define a problem all day long. And we have a real danger today with all the information. We love information. Today we are addicted to information. More information, more information, more information, and it's making us stupider every single day because nobody has any real understanding. All right? You can define a problem all day long. Like you can say, yeah, this is the problem. But unless you implement the things that are going to fix that problem, it's done you no good. So confession is good. Bring it to the light. That's a huge part of it. But now go and do what God has called you to go do. Right? I was wrong for speaking to you in this way. I was wrong for biting you. That's something we dealt with this week with our children. Um, now go and don't bite people. <laughs> go and serve them. Instead of confessing lust and, and, and sexual failure, confess it. But now go live in faithfulness to your spouse. Now go live in faithfulness and celibacy or wherever you're at in your season. Right? You get the point. Ten Commandments are not just there as a line for us not to cross. Did you know this? The Ten Commandments are not just, okay, don't cross that line and I'm good. The Ten Commandments have been set there so that we would get as far away from uh, the disobedience as possible. And it is sinful to see how close you can get to the line. All right? So turn from your sin and walk in righteousness. Confess your sins. Look to Christ. Walk in obedience to his command. Luther says the whole of the believer's life is one of repentance. And I'll leave you with a Spurgeon quote on repentance. He says, repentance grows in faith as faith grows. Do not make any mistake about it. Repentance is not a thing of days or weeks, a temporary penance to get over as fast as possible. No, it is the grace of a lifetime. I love that. It is a repentance. It's a grace of a lifetime. Like faith itself, God's little children repent, and so do young men and fathers. Repentance is the indispensable companion of faith. Therefore, walk in repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the gifts of confession and repentance. May we use those right now as we prepare our hearts to come to your table, as we prepare to be reminded of the covenant, as we prepare to remember that you blazed the trail through the wilderness by your own body, that you have torn the curtain, which is your flesh, and made a way of reconciliation. May we not self-justify like our father Adam or blame shift. May we not self-justify like the people of Israel or the Pharisees. Help us not to double down in stubbornness, but confess quickly, fully, all the way down. And if we have wronged others here, help us to know first our sin is against you. But if we have wronged others, may we go to them 
and, and uh, confess our sins. And if there needs to be uh, things we've got to walk back to fix that, may we do that. We know we have the grace for it. In Jesus' name, amen.